This is episode 191 of That Shakespeare Life. Bring our podcast into your classroom with access to our video streaming library, printable worksheets, lesson plans, and activities that work like science labs for Shakespeare history. Unlock all these benefits when you become a member here at That Shakespeare Life, where you can cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Sign up today at castycash.com slash member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Professor Tracy Hill from Bathspar University in the UK. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. There was already a fashion for pearls within the elite, I'd say, and it's evidence from about the 1400s onwards. But they were just worn differently as more of a kind of a decoration on headwear, particularly for men in portraits. But they definitely do become a more popularised form of jewellery within Elizabeth's and her father, Henry VIII's reign. I'd say outside of the portraits, they're still being used in a similar way, obviously not in the same amount of abundance. But for women, it would be an adornment on the clothing around the neck, or of course as earrings, or, you know, along the the top of the farthingale. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Shakespeare uses the word pearl over 40 times across his works. He describes them as objects of high value, and in Troilus and Cressida, uses the pearl to describe a rare and valuable woman, saying, quote, she is a pearl whose price hath launched above a thousand ships, end quote. The pearl trade was an industry well-established under Henry VIII of England, who looked to the pearl trade as a way to strengthen England's international relations after separation from Catholicism left them in need of some strong allies. Elizabeth I continued this pursuit, but enhanced the value of the pearl in England up to sixfold by some scholarly estimates over the first 60 years in the 16th century, due in part to the fact that the queen literally wore thousands of them herself. Many of her most opulent outfits appearing in numerous royal portraits of Elizabeth I feature thousands of this precious gemstone. During Elizabeth's reign, England regularly imported pearls by the shipload from countries like Morocco, Persia, and China. The imagery and symbolism of the pearl in England is associated with purity, chastity, and even as a description for the ocular disease cataracts, which Shakespeare alludes to in A Midsummer Night's Dream and Rape of Lucrece. Our guest this week is Sirsha Larachi, a PhD candidate with the Shakespeare Institute and author of Pearls, Trade, Beauty, and North Africa for Medieval and Early Modern Orients. She joins us today to share the history of pearls in Shakespeare's lifetime, to discuss their use in general fashion, their purpose in international trade agreements, and what we should understand about pearls from the Orient specifically when we find these references in Shakespeare's plays. Sirsha Larachi is a doctoral researcher at the Shakespeare Institute. Her work surrounds rethinking the early modern body and how it was adorned and performed in the 16th and 17th centuries. She has written for the King Center for Early Modern Studies on Prosthesis and is currently a research member of the Medieval and Early Modern Orients. 
Hello, Sersha. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. During the 16th century, pearls were acknowledged globally as a rare and precious luxury item. But why did Elizabeth I use them more prolifically than other monarchs around the world at this time? I think there are there are two main reasons here. Uh, firstly, from the 1590s onwards, the use of pearls it fit in well with the image of the Virgin Queen um, that Elizabeth was cultivating through portraits and imagery of herself. And as it was a popular decorative item already, it was something that she could introduce in abundance into portraits and on her person, and it would have had clear symbolism attached to it for the time. But also, I think it was a clear way of tying herself to her father, Henry VIII, who was also a prolific user of pearls, maybe not to the same extent, and about legitimising her reign as the daughter of Henry VIII rather than the daughter of Anne Boleyn. And it's not the only way that she tried to do this as well. She reinforced ties to her father with really emphasising her red hair, her fiery red hair, and having it down and not wearing the kind of fashionable hoods of the period. So I think that's another aspect to this abundance of pearls that comes repeatedly throughout the later part of her reign. In her article for Medieval and Early Modern Orients, which we will link you to in today's show notes, Saoirse writes that a quote from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet invokes the image of a pearl when Romeo compares Juliet, quote, to a rich jewel in an Ethiop's ear, end quote. That comes from Act 1, Scene 5 of Romeo and Juliet. Saoirse, what is it about the jewel belonging to an Ethiopian that identifies this jewel as a pearl, specifically? We, of course, cannot know for sure what the jewel was. And of course, it's a metaphor. It's not actually performed on stage. But I think there is a valid argument for it being a pearl. If we're thinking about the root of pearls within this period, that they're coming through North African ports into Europe, from other countries in Africa, and through North Africa's ties with the Middle East and the Ottoman Empire, it makes sense for this contrast between Ethiop and the pearl. And then I think on a wider aspect as well, throughout Romeo and Juliet, there is this core juxtaposition of light and darkness all the way through with space, language and description. So if we're thinking about this when it comes to Romeo's descriptions at first seeing Juliet, it does seem plausible that it is a pearl offset by this darker complexion to enhance the beauty of the jewellery, which is essentially what Romeo is getting at with his subsequent lines. So shows a snowy dove trooping with crows as yonder lady our fellow shows and she doth teach the torches to burn bright. It is this real contrast between light and dark. And this isn't something new that Shakespeare's doing. You know, Elizabeth in her portraits is also trying to reinforce her own pearlescent skin, that divinity and purity shining outwards. And you can also see this in later portraiture, centuries onwards, while in using non-white figures to offset central figures in portraiture scenes. And I think this is the kind of essential argument behind a, a pearl foot in the Ethiop's ear. The reference to an Ethiop's ear indicates pearls were associated specifically with North Africa. And you mentioned the route of arrival that pearls would take to get to England. But were pearls in the 16th century always sourced from Ethiopia and North Africa? 
No, not at all, actually. Um, pearl fishing was more associated with places like the Persian Gulf, with China, and also um, there were strong associations with Spain following Columbus's discoveries of pearls, although that's not in it's in, debatable um, in the Central and South Americas. I think the ties with, more, with North Africa are more through the use of ports and their own part in the slave trade within Africa as well, as kind of some of the North African countries were part of trafficking people into Europe and across the Americas itself. And of course, you also have these relationships with Turkey as Tunisia is was under Ottoman control, which is part of North Africa as well. So North Africa, I see it as this kind of central space where lots of countries are, are, are meeting and exchanging products and trade and things. So not always essentially Ethiopia. And I think the association I made in the reference in Romeo and Juliet was more of a broader comment on emerging concepts of race and colorism that come from this period of discovery and these wider trade routes that are being established rather than saying Shakespeare is making an accurate comment on the pearl trade and where pearls were sourced from. Shakespeare's works describe pearls of higher value as specifically, quote, Orient pearls. Sirsha, what areas of the world is Shakespeare referring to when he writes about the Orient? What are we supposed to be thinking of geographically? And why were pearls from these areas seen as more valuable than pearls from other places? So the Orient that Shakespeare would know of would consist of kind of what we understand of as the East today. So that's the continent of Asia and would include countries like China, Turkey, the Middle East, India, and so on. But it can be a little bit tricky because sometimes and throughout Shakespeare criticism as well, North Africa is included in this description of the Orient and part of the East, even though geographically it's not so, but because it shares religions and cultures with parts of the East. And I can't really say if if or why these would have been seen more valuable. I, if I took a guess, I'd say possibly because of trade and the fact that other countries are looking to different sources. So it's a way of establishing a rarity to these pearls other than one source from other places. But it's it's hard to say, really. For Elizabeth I specifically, why was the pearl trade out of North Africa important for the continuation of the Tudor dynasty? I think not necessarily just the pearl trade specifically out of North Africa, but yes, North Africa or the Barbary states, as they would have been known in the 16th century, would have been important for Elizabeth and this continuation of not necessarily the dynasty, but reinforcing herself as a legitimate monarch. I think as particularly Morocco was for Elizabeth a new potential for trade, friendship and alliance, especially after the attack from the Spanish in 1588. You know, both countries held in common an understanding of the power of Catholic Spain. And for Elizabeth, who wasn't as wealthy as she'd have us believe from her portraits, would benefit mightily from the wealth of the Moroccan kingdom and their source of gold from Mali and other Central African countries. I think the importance of Morocco as a potential ally has been singled down somewhat into this one visit that we hear of from the ambassador of Morocco to England in 1600. However, there were talks, exchanges of gifts and Moroccan delegations within England 
that can be found in the state papers dating back to the 1570s. So it was more than an Anglo-Moroccan alliance that came at the end of Elizabeth's life, but a long-standing diplomatic relationship or potential relationship that England saw value in. Along with being a symbol of beauty, Sirsha identifies the pearl as being a symbol, surprisingly, for eye disease. Sirsha shares that Shakespeare uses this medically symbolic association with pearls in his play Titus Andronicus. Sirsha, what line in Titus Andronicus talks about a pearly gaze, and why is the pearl associated with eye disease for Shakespeare's lifetime? I mean, I think about cataracts as the potential eye disease they're referencing here, but is that how Shakespeare understood it? believe so, yeah. So it's mentioned twice when Lucius describes Aaron as both the pearl that pleased the empress eye and a wall-eyed slave in Act 5, Scene 1. And the implication is that Aaron had blinded Tamora with his charismatic villainy, causing a lapse in her faculties and obscuring under the pearly gaze both his dark skin and his villainous character. I think, again, it goes back to the ideas in Romeo and Juliet with lightness and darkness and with humoral theory recording those conditions with eyes, especially cataracts, which would render the patient unable to distinguish anything but light and darkness. I think the nature of the use of the pearl as a signifier of lightness and purity through metaphor and visually would, to an early modern eye, make it an appropriate association. I think as well, we have to think about what they would be seeing with conditions such as, say, what we would understand as glaucoma or a cataract and how they would be finding ways in their world of defining and assimilating conditions to tangible ideas already present. So I think that's why we get this association between the kind of luster and the the outside shell of the pearl with these conditions in the eye. There are two portraits of Elizabeth I that Saoirse uses in her article to demonstrate Elizabeth's prolific use of pearls. And I will share these portraits in the show notes for today's episode so you can see Elizabeth's outfits because they are literally dripping with pearls from head to toe. Obviously, Saoirse, the queen, enjoys a level of affluence that allows her to be dripping in pearls. But for the rest of the elite and aristocracy of England, did Elizabeth's penchant for pearls set off a general fashion for this jewel in England? And how were pearls used outside of the Queen's portraits. I think you alluded to them being a popular jewel in general that she just sort of exploited for her personal image. But where do we see them show up? Definitely. So there was already a fashion for pearls within the elite, I'd say, and it's evidence from about the 1400s onwards. But they were just worn differently as more of a kind of a decoration on headwear, particularly for men in portraits. But they definitely do become a more popularised form of jewellery within Elizabeth's and her father, Henry VIII's reign. I'd say outside of the portraits, they're still being used in a similar way, obviously not in the same amount of abundance. But for women, it would be an adornment on the clothing around the neck or, of course, as earrings or, you know, along the the top of the farthingale that connects the kind of top of the, I suppose we'd call it a top now, to the skirt. But then in the case of men, which I think we see more as a popularised image from this period, is wearing them as earrings and I'm sure some of the listeners um, may have seen portraits of Sir Walter Raleigh and even Shakespeare depicted with an earring in which is one of the kind of main fashion trends of the period. 
Searsha writes that pearls were nearing the end of their popularity globally when Elizabeth began to use them prolifically in her reign in England. Searsha, how did Elizabeth's use of pearls impact her reputation abroad? If the pearl was ending at the height of its popularity when Elizabeth chose to use them for her image in England, was she seen by other monarchs around the world as old-fashioned or perhaps behind the trend for her pearls? I wouldn't say behind a trend, as the association of pearls with wealth, nobility was far more than a trend, but a long tradition dating back to the Romans and beyond. I think Elizabeth was using an embedded royal accessory that could be recognised by other rulers as appropriate for her status as Queen of England, and that she was using them for a pointed purpose in wearing a lot of pearls to convey a specific image that would bolster her status as a divine monarch rather than inhibit it. I would also say that it's just a case of taste throughout history and that in the following centuries there was more of a want for pendant jewellery in shapes of animals or scenes rather than standalone gems and stones that we find referenced in Shakespeare's works and that has changed again and again since and come back round full circle to those such as Princess Mary of Trek, the grandmother to Elizabeth II, who wore several chains of pearls in the early 20th century. I know we would love to explore the history of pearls and especially how they played a role in Shakespeare's lifetime further. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? I would suggest Ornamentalism, the Art of Renaissance Accessories, edited and introduced by Bella Mirabella. And there's a great chapter all on pearls by Karen Raber in there. I'd also suggest for more explorations on Africa and trade, Black Tudors by Miranda Kaufman. And then if you wanted something a bit smaller to delve into, I would suggest Of Pearls and Sitemas, the Shakespearean Bazaar of Oriental Props by Ladan Mayesh. Those are excellent resources. I can't wait to explore those myself. We'll be linking you to these as well as to the article Saoirse wrote in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you stop by there to find all of these great things. Saoirse, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. I think it would have to be The Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter. It's a favorite of mine. Ooh, sounds exciting. You'll be well set up on your desert island for sure. (laughs) So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? I'm excited about finishing up my thesis. I'm really looking forward to having it all bound in one copy (gasps) and being able to hold it. Exciting times. And more posts for the Mimos um, website on North Africa and its presence in early modern drama, particularly around costume and performance, and a few future projects that I can't say much about, about North Africa and costume to come in the future. So stay tuned. Absolutely. Exciting stuff coming from Saoirse and Medieval and Early Modern Orients. We'll link you to Saoirse's work as well as to that website so you can stay in touch and follow all the great things coming from there. Thank you so much, Saoirse, for being here and taking us through the history of pearls in Shakespeare's lifetime. This has been a fun conversation. Thank you for having me. 
Find links to the resources Sirsha mentions in today's episode, along with some bonus archival images of pearls and those wonderful portraits of Elizabeth I simply dripping in pearls on her outfits, all packed into the show notes for today's episode. While you're over there at the website, be sure to leave us a comment and let us know what you liked about the show today. The comment section is also a great place to post any questions about pearls you may have to follow up on the episode. Find all these things and continue the conversation with us at CassidyCash.com slash episode 191. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP191. If you enjoy our show, be sure to leave us a comment and a rating on your favorite podcast platform and share the show with someone you think might enjoy learning something new about Shakespeare. For exclusive podcast episodes, bonus content, and a library of printable resources like lesson plans, worksheets, and even some Shakespeare history courses that coordinate with our show, be sure to explore our members area at castycash.com slash member. That's castycash.com slash member. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.